Shalom, and welcome to the Jewish Disability Services Together We Make an Impact podcast. I'm Rose. And I'm Adam. And during today's episode, we are discussing self-advocacy and disability with a special focus on intellectual and developmental disabilities and autism spectrum disorder. Before we dive in, let's take a moment to get to know our guests, Rachel Hammer and Dr. Shiri Sella. Rachel, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at JFCS? Sure. Um, Well, I'm the Executive Director of Jewish Family and Children's Services, um, and um, I've been in the nonprofit field for about 25 years, and I'm also a parent of a child with special needs. And so um, it's Jewish Family and Children's Services, a phenomenal organization that provides social services to those um, who are, you know, from cradle to grave, as they say, from very young to our to our eldest, and so um, including mental health, um, mental health counseling, and support groups. Wonderful, thank you, uh, Doctor Sella. Can you please tell us a bit about yourself and your practice? Sure, um, I'm a licensed psychologist uh, practicing in Marlton, New Jersey. Um, I started out uh, my training as in school psychology, and I worked for many years at a variety of clinical day schools where I kind of met and fell in love with adolescents on the autism spectrum. And so when I first started out my private practice, uh, I kind of, um, as students were graduating from my school, I I kept them in my practice and and formed a practice I could keep working with them. Um, And I've expanded my practice since then. I also work with people that are not on the spectrum, but a lot of my clients are adolescents and young adults that are launching into adulthood so they might have been supported with an IEP and had a lot of support services and they kind of graduate into ether. And so I have a lot of people in their 20s that, you know, trying to figure out how to navigate the adult disability world and just other aspects of adulthood. Uh, so I work with the young adults. I work with their parents, I work with their siblings. Um, and um, I used to consult for a large school district, but I no longer do that Um and uh, yeah, that's that's me. That's awesome. Well, I'm really excited to have you guys here for this conversation. Uh, to get us started, and either of you can take this, how would you describe what self-advocacy is and what it looks like in the people that you work with? So I'm happy to talk a little bit about self-advocacy. Um, a part of what um, I, I think one of the signature programs that JFCS operates and, ru- and runs as our disability services department. Um, and that is a program that specifically works with people with um, intellectual disabilities. And um, we provide everything from um, job coaching to employment specialists to um, recreational and day programs to help um, our clients with disabilities thrive to be the best person that they could be. And a lot of that is looking at where our clients are at in a moment in time and listening to them, hearing them and helping them provide their, you know, helping guide them and provide them with insight in how they can advocate for themselves, how they can find their own voice, how they can figure out ways to navigate their world in the best possible way. And a lot of that is, you know, one-on-one interactions and conversations, but, you know, and also experiential opportunities, teaching them, teaching them life skills so they can help themselves um, in whatever that looks like for them. And so as from a self-advocacy perspective, I always feel like it's, for me, it's, it's probably the, the, best part of my job is when I get to work with a person and help them find their voice and see them actualize that. 
Um, and that happens, you know, in, in a lot of the different programs within JFCS, but also in everyday life, um, you know, with the people we, we work with, um, you know, on a, on a consistent basis, even with mental health and counseling, finding your own voice. Um, so you can, so you can tell the world what you need works for you in the best possible manner. Um, and it looks different for everybody. Um, Dr. Sella, what's your take on what self-advocacy is and what it looks like? Yes. So uh, similar to, to Rachel, um, I think a lot of the work that I do with young adults does have to do with helping them find their voice. I think for me, it starts with um, actually assessing their own understanding of what their needs are. So depending on the cognitive functioning level and the mental health, uh, some of my clients are very clear on what they need and others have less realistic ideas about their um, strengths and weaknesses. So self-advocacy actually starts with sort of self-education and um, a lot of it is using their own words the, or their own language. So I never argue with someone about, uh, you know, a label or, or diagnosis. Um, I use the language that they provide. Um, but the first is to describe to others, you know, what you are, who you are, what works for you, what doesn't work for you. Um, and then a lot of it is also assessing what can you actually ask for in what setting, what power leverage do you have? Um, we do a lot of psychoeducation on that. Um, I actually teach people some basic DBT skills, dialectic behavioral therapy skills, which are actually self-regulation skills, but they're things like um, describing your need, expressing your emotion, and then making a specific request for change. So actually giving people the, the mechanism or the process for how to make a request, as well as assessing um, whether or not they actually can ask for certain things in certain situations. There are times when you can make a request and times where your request is not going to be heard. Um, for me, a lot of it is also decreasing dependence on the people that have been speaking for my clients. And that actually paradoxically sometimes means working with the families to think about ways to step back. And, and depending on the situation, I have clients who want to stay very dependent and the parents are wanting them to become more independent. And I have the opposite where I have clients who are ready to go and the families are so used to speaking for them yep. that I have to actually help them let go of their clients. Um, I happen to love the job coaching services at JFCS. It's my favorite. I refer everyone to them. Um, and some of my work is actually with job coaches. And so a client will come in and tell me, I don't want this kind of job. And then we call the job coach together. So I do a lot of like, let's call together yep. or, you know, let's write out. We, we write texts in my office. We write emails in my office. Um, you know, the word role playing, right? A lot of role playing. Yes, absolutely. Dr. Sella, one of the things that you had said that I think resonated with me the most is that you describe different ways self-advocacy looks. And I think it's really important for people to understand that there is no one way to self-advocate. Advocacy looks different, you know, specifically self-advocacy, depending on the clients and the, com and the community you're working with. And so for some people, as you said, it would be speaking and other people, it may be doing something different, but it's, it's really on, on their terms and what they're comfortable with. And it's helping them find the best way for them to express what they need and the way they need it. And so I, I think sometimes as, as you know, I'm a fixer. I want to fix problems. It's my go-to. Like I want to make it better. It's why I went into the work we, we go into to make the world a better place. I know it's hokey, but it is true. Um, but we can't, you know, part of helping, other, I think the best kind of help is helping other people fix their own problems, but it doesn't all look the same way. And we have to be okay with that and sometimes sit in that space, right? Like what would work for you doesn't work for me and what works for somebody else is different. So to learn how to really actively listen and see and feel so we can hear our clients and let them find that space. To me, it's, it's 
your, your comments resonated in that manner with me because I feel like it, I think we have to know it doesn't look the same for everybody and that's okay. I also just wanted to speak to Rachel's point at the beginning when she spoke about sort of meeting them where they are, like the, you know, the starting place or where they are in a specific given time. I see a lot of my clients for five, six, seven, eight, eight years. I have some clients who are in their thirties now and I've known them since they're 14. So there's a lot of sort of what can you do right now yep. um, and, and assessing. So a lot of, for a lot of them, it's written rather than verbal. And then we get into verbal and, and, you know, can you leave a message? So like what is going to work for you when? That's all I was going to comment on. And then, and then I would say, like, for my, you know, my own experiences with my son, you know, there were certain things that, you know, he had an IEP in school. And so, um, and when there were substitute teachers or even his regular teachers, maybe they would forget something in that IEP. So I was, I was a parent who said, you know, here is your IEP. This is what they're allowed to do. This is what they're not allowed to do. You're not allowed to have your recess taken away because you need that. So you have to learn how to respectfully advocate to your teachers and remind them that this is what you need to, to be the best possible student you can be. And so my son was that student. If, if a teacher tried to take away recess or be like, well, excuse me, Mrs. Smith, you know, according to my IEP, I need that you know, we have to look at another form of punishment or another form of, you know, punitive action. And so it was, you know, for him, he was very vocal and I needed to channel his conversation and it worked. I mean, you know, as long as he delivered the, the comments respectfully, it, you know, it was, it, you know, and for every child it's different, but, you know, it was, you know, helping t- for him to understand what he needed, you know, so he could internalize it and then externalize it when I wasn't with him. So he could be the best possible him when I'm not around, because eventually that's the goal, right? Is to people can be as independent as they possibly can be. Um, so they're not, as you said, codependent on others or having other people speak for them. Yeah. I think Adam, if you don't mind, I'm actually going to hop in because I think I found a nice bridge for this. Um, combining these things, how would you describe what the biggest barriers are to self-advocacy and what are ways to encourage that at, in, at home and in the school setting? Because you guys have such rich examples. So I figure we might be able to combine that into a nice discussion here. Sure, I can, I can start us on that one. So the first, bar- the first set of barriers is really systemic. Uh, and just as a regular neurotypical adult in the world, I would say that since COVID, uh, it's even harder to sort of call a doctor or make an appointment. You have to go through these systems, you have to push the right button. So, you know, the systems are not set up for any adult, I feel like, these days to navigate. And it's particularly difficult if you have cognitive cognitive deficits or anxiety or impulse control problems, you know, the kind of things that my clients face. So I think the, the first bears are just actually just systemic. And so you know, the psychoeducation and the doing it with and the preparing ahead of time really helps. Um, the second barrier is lack of practice and, and lack of self-image. You know, I don't see myself as someone who, you know, does this for themselves. A lot of my clients say, well, my parents do that. Or, you know, that's not that's so they a lot of my clients don't see themselves as adults. And so um, I, I would say that's a, that's a second barrier. And the third barrier is for a lot of my clients, it's a lack of words. It's what do I actually say? And back to that role play and back to writing out scripts and calling together. It's, it's, you know, I want to, but I don't know how to. Um, I, I kind of feel like a closely associated set of skills is being a smart consumer. And so I encourage my clients if they are, for some reason, I'm thinking about medical advocacy right now, but like to call multiple doctors um, and to ask their questions. Um, we, we do a lot of things like writing out questions ahead of time. 
um, before going. If a parent isn't going to go with them, writing out what they're going to ask, putting a parent on speakerphone. Um, I, I've had people write out the medical history, all the medications that the young person's on, and then laminate it, and they take it with them everywhere. So um, those are some of the barriers and some of the possible ways to, to work around yeah. them. I, I think I would echo all of those. I think to and add into that, sometimes a power dynamic, sometimes it's intimidating to self-advocate, and that fear or self-confidence or lack thereof gets in the way. And um, so depending on what environment you're in, I find it helpful with clients to actually, it's, it's almost like exposure therapy where you're doing it together and with them, but mirroring and, um, you know, you're, you're um, modeling and mirroring positive ways to self-advocate. And in, even when it doesn't go well, it's still a learning opportunity. I think that's the hardest probably lessons to learn when something doesn't go well, to figure out a way to slow down with your clients and unpack it and, and let it be a learning lesson and not, you know, and, and then in, in it being a learning lesson, nothing's a failure, right? We don't fail. What do they say? Science, scientists fail, fail and fail again until they succeed. Like that's, that's the process. And so being able to do that with our clients and showing them that, you know, that that is the process in life that we are going to stumble and then we're going to do better. And even stumbling is a success because we did it. And, it, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't move forward if you don't try. And I think trying to empower that resilience and that confidence in our, in our clients is a big part of that um, and positive reinforcement and trying to put them in positive situations, um, you know, allowing them to experiment in safe places, um, you know, and all of the examples that Dr. Sella had, had, had talked about are, are examples of doing that. And one of the things I love about kind of the job coach and employment world at, 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 um, at JFCS is we are putting them into the workforce and we are putting them into the workforce in a safe manner with a partner to help them to be successful unto themselves so they could coach them and remind them. And they don't always, you know, as, you know, as we said, they don't always succeed, but even in, in even in, you know, not, not moving through in a particular position, you're still succeeding because you're finding out what works and what doesn't work and you're doing it in a safe way. And that safety net is really important for our vulnerable clients because we, we don't want them to have one setback and then not to move forward, but we want them to continue to move forward. Even if we take two steps back and five steps forward, in the end, you still have that gain because you help them take the step, but they had to take it and they had to have the confidence to do it in the end. They have to do the work and we're just there to enable and empower them to be successful. Um, and I think there's nothing there's nothing better than seeing a client, you know, um, I, I was talking to one of our employment specialists recently and she's like, you know, he was interviewing at Wegmans to get this full time job. And, you know, it comes with benefits and all of these things. And he had been there in a part time capacity for a really long time. And they treated him like any other employee, you know, as far as interviewing and skill sets and all of that. And he was able to win that job. He was able to earn that job the full time. And it was it was to sheer to see the, the sheer pride on our on our job coach's face was it, I couldn't imagine. And the client themselves, it was just to know that they worked for years up to that point and was able to get through that program and, and to be fully employed like that. Just we were just a little part of it, but it was it was really amazing. Um, and it's and what it's what it's all about, helping them be successful in their life. 
Yeah, you know, you you both shared such beautiful examples, I think, of, of what self-advocacy can look, sound, and feel like. Um, and, and I appreciate you really giving your perspective on, on what self-advocacy is. Um, something that Rose and I are oftentimes asking each other and our guests is um, we're very aware and cognizant of the caregivers in our lives and those that work with their loved ones. Um, and so I'm wondering from both of your perspectives, because you, you certainly work with many types of families and clients and patients, um, how can, how can caregivers advocate for their own needs while also encouraging their loved ones to self-advocate? Um, you know, an example I think that, that many of us see in these spaces could be um, if a child might communicate that they want to go to a playground, but the caregiver can't take them because they're too exhausted or have other needs of their own that they need to be met in that current moment. How, how as practitioners, do you feel we can, we can give caregivers advice on how to balance their own well-being while taking care of somebody else that, that truly needs their voice to maybe self-advocate at the same time? That question is very near dear, dear to my heart because I think one of my main concerns in my practice is caregiver fatigue, um, especially as systems are starting to fall apart and everything is falling on the caregivers. Um, I think the first point I want to make is that self-advocating is not the same as getting what you ask for. Mm. This is very important because uh, especially on the autism population, some of my clients and I, I don't mean this in a derogatory, uncaring, but they can be perceived as bullies or they can kind of push very hard for what they want. And they call that self-advocacy. So if you are advocating to your parent that you want to do something, your parent is going to listen. Self-advocacy meaning somebody gave you a voice. You had your space and your time to outline your reasons. And you're taken as seriously as anyone else with without disabilities. That does not guarantee you that you're going to get the thing you asked for. And the other Sorry? person also has a voice. And I think you're not modeling self-advocacy if as a parent, you are confusing that and just giving your child everything they want. And that's going to rep be replicated out in the community. A big problem of my clients, my adult autism clients, is that they get kicked out of social settings for being stalker-like or perseverative or overwhelming or annoying or you know, going over other people's boundaries. So self-advocacy is not the same as demanding and getting what you want. Um, the second thing that it is not is it is not the a permission to just say no to everything. So again, on the autism spectrum is a lot of avoidance. So I advocated, I said I didn't want to go to the holiday party. I advocated I want to go, go on the family trip. So I, I, you know, I, I work with people on what no to what part under what circumstance and what's another yes. So it's a lot of it is teaching compromise skills yeah. and having a fuller conversation. So, so I, I, I do a thing. So in terms of job coaching, I have clients who say no to every job. So coaches call me, be like, they don't want to do it. So I say, okay, tell me all your reasons for the no. I've never seen the store. Okay. It's smelly. Okay. I, one time, 10 years ago, I went by the store and there was someone there that looked creepy. Okay. You know, I go through, so analyze. So it's a lot of just the, collecting the details and working through that. But um, self-advocacy is not the same thing as bullying others into getting you what you want. And, you, and a skill, accepting no with grace is a really important sub-skill. I think that makes a lot of sense, Dr. Sala. I think that the other thing I've learned from a caregiver perspective is that, you know, we're, we're trying to model, you know, these positive experiences for our clients so they can replicate them, right? And we're trying to work with them. So the best way to do that is to, 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 to you know, give of yourself. And so in the example that you gave, <clears throat> we want to try to, you know, 
explain to our clients why they can't have something, you know, or why they're, why is it a no? Well, you know, it's that, you know, mommy's exhausted. You know, when you're exhausted, it's hard to do something and we need to take a break. We could go later. There's another, but to give them the understanding of the why, um, and this is the reason, and it, it may stick, it may not, but I think it's really important as caregivers, we can't take care of the people we're caring for without caring for ourselves first. It's that age old, you know, if that, you know, if that oxygen mask falls down from the plane and you put the other person's on first, you're not going to be able to care for him or them if you're, if, if, if you've passed out because you don't have air and we need that air to breathe. We need to fuel our soul and our body and ourselves, especially when you're caring for someone who has challenges and vulnerabilities as anybody does. Whether you have a neurotypical, you know, child or you have a neuroatypical child or or whatever the day is, right? It, it, you need to be able to find that space and time to take a little time out for yourself, whether it's five minutes or 15 minutes. And, and I have found it helpful in working with clients and in working with my own family to explain to them the, the, what I need and how they can help me and how that will benefit them. And sometimes how it will benefit them will help get that message through. Well, if you give, you know, me 10 minutes, then we can do X afterwards. But I really need that 10 minutes and try to have them relate to it. They all have experiences themselves. And hopefully they can, if you can find the experiences that they understand and have them relate it, it may help, it may help give you that opportunity to advocate for what you need. Um, And, you know, and hopefully, you know, caregivers will carve out time every day for themselves. It could be 10 minutes. It could be five minutes, 10 times a day, whatever it is to refuel your batteries, to recharge your, you know, and energize your spirit because it's so important. And as caregivers, we often put ourselves last. And it's caregiver fatigue, which is exactly what Dr. Sella started out with, which is so dangerous because at the end of the day, we need everybody to be 100%. But if we don't value ourselves enough to put ourselves in the mix, we'll never get there. And we don't want to model that for our clients either, that they should be last, that we should forget, you know, that we should forget ourselves in the process. We have to remember ourselves in the process because we're, you know, part of you know, this kind of great continuum that is helping to make the world a better place. And if you forget that, then you won't you won't be able to accomplish any of those goals or take care of the, the ones who matter most to you. And so, like I said, five minutes, I, I, it's a charge for everybody, regardless, caregiver, independent person, five minutes, 10 minutes a day, find that time, whatever fuels your, your soul to find it and implement it and be true to it. I wanted to just piggyback on that. Actually, in a way, when we teach self-advocacy skills, we are creating other adults that can help our young, our young people. And so they can decrease the reliance on us. That's right. So it, you know, especially in that 18, 19, as you, so, so if it's always just mom, my mom always explains to the doctors or to the teachers what I need or to the, and then, you know, if you're on a college campus, we now have someone in the student assistance program, or um, I, I particularly really like the community mentors that a lot of my clients who have DDD support services have. Uh, a shout out to the Jeffs program, which I think is just top of the line. They're mentors, um, you know, they're, they're the non-parent adult that support young adults. And with a lot of my clients, I actually make a chart. Okay, if mom is not available, can you call, can you call Aunt Susie? Can you, fe- and, and what can you do with each person? I try to get them to help each other and with, with what topic. And a lot of my clients don't think of that on their own. They would just rather go to the one person. So when you teach them to have a voice 
and to ask what they want. And then the other adults could be trained and taught how to respond to them appropriately. They are going to decrease the dependence on the parent. So that's a huge piece of this whole arc. A hundred percent. And Dr. Sella, I think you brought up a very interesting point before, um, just about how we model behavior. And I think oftentimes this is the one space um, where caregivers forget that this is also about modeling behavior to help our loved one find that their voice and that self-advocacy. Yeah. I wish Absolutely. all of our listeners could see how often our heads are shaking in agreement. It's been a lovely <laughs> yeah. uh, nodding conversation. It's It's been nice to see. Um, you know, another reason that we wanted to have this conversation was to discuss the concept of masking. Um, and so for those who are unaware, those who are listening, masking is the phenomenon in which people who are neurodiverse will hide their symptoms or behaviors in different environments, often as a means of social, uh, or I'm sorry, often as a means to conceal or deny aspects of their identity in order to avoid the judgment that may come with being viewed as different. Um, we wanted to bring this up because masking is not widely understood, and we believe that by raising awareness, we can help our community better understand and support our neurodiverse community members. Relatedly, the, uh, the holiday of Purim is coming up, uh, which sometimes is referred to as the Festival of Masks. Um, and so here at JDS, Together We Make an Impact podcast, we love the opportunity for a Jewish teachable moment. So for those of you who are not familiar with the holiday of Purim, one of the major themes of the story is how Esther hid her identity. And so with all that being said, in both of your experiences, I'm wondering what you have seen masking look like. Uh, does it tend to maybe present differently in children, teens, and adults? And, and have you found there to be any detrimental long-term effects when someone masks as a part of their identity? You want to start with that one, Rachel? Do you want to take that? Um, I can certainly. I, I think that, you know, from what I can... From what I've seen in the community, I think masking can happen both intentionally and unintentionally. I think um, there's a desire for, you know, people to want to be accepted across the board and depending on the environment. I mean, and that's a natural desire for everybody, regardless of, you know, of, of how we fall, whether it be on the spectrum or not or neurotypical. We all want to be accepted and loved and accepted for who we are. And so I think that um, when, you know, when people are presented with an environment that they feel different or they're afraid they're going to be judged, often we find, you know, we, we find, um, and, and this happens with our clients. And I think just in general with people, we find ourselves trying to fit in. And that does sometimes, you know, I think, again, consciously or unconsciously, you know, cause clients to try to hide their disabilities, to try to assimilate or change their mannerisms. Um, and I think, you know, in, in some environments where it's not as accepting or, or, or as tolerant, it's the fear is being rejected. And in other, you know, and, and in other environments, I think where it's more open and accepted, clients are, are more, I think, are willing to be themselves. And to um, and so I think that um, there's there, there are, you know, definitely um, positives and negatives that come from that. Learning how to fit in is a social skill that is important. To have when to have conversation, when to speak, when not to speak, how to share the space in the conversation. So there are some positive things to take away from it. I do think when it comes in a judgmental format, or we're you know at a fear of of being bullied or you know demeaned or diminished, you know obviously that has long term traumatic effects on people. Um, and so I think it's it's a balance, and I think you know it can it can result in in you know long term feelings of um, of you know self-esteem issues and other things. And so I think there's a balance of, you know, it depends on how we're masking and why we're masking. Um, and, and if it's happening subconsciously 
or, you know, or um, intentionally. And I wish I could say, yes, it's good or no, it's bad. But I don't think it is one of those things that have a clear, defined, um, you know, judgment. I think it depends on the space and the place and the reason. It is important that we learn to, you know, interact with others in acceptable manners. And, and Dr. Dr. Sella had, had said this, you know, a couple of times is, you know, depending on how clients act, if they're too aggressive or assertive, you know, that is, that is, you know, not socially appropriate. And then if they're not assertive enough, assertive enough, again, you know, so it's finding that balance, but it's really about, I think, empowering our clients and our community to figure out what works for them. And then empowering our community to be more accepting for people with differences, because I think there is a balance and I think there's room for both. Um, you know, again, I can, I can, you know, remember when, um, you know, when my son would go out in the community and he had a ticking disorder, he had Tourette syndrome. And so we would go out in, in the community, we would explain to the places we were going, why he was making the noises he was making in order to, to have a better environment for him because he couldn't mask. He had a disability that doesn't allow him to, to hide you know, to, to hide it in, in some cases. And so he didn't have the privilege of, 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 of privacy. And so, um, you know, and in time that wasn't necessary, but, you know, we tried to fix the environment and teach and educate. And in most cases we were, we, I think we were successful. And, um, and then he was trying to figure out ways to manage his, his ability to change and, and, and amend. And so I think, Again, I don't think it's a clear cut, good or bad. I think it depends on the situation. And the goal is to find acceptance for everybody, both from a communal perspective, as well as an individual perspective. Beautiful. I, I love that. I love the concept of, you know, ideally, we want to make a more accepting, more beautiful world where everybody can be accepted as they are. And maybe one of the ways to think about masking is until we get there, for a lot of our clients, there has to be some kind of balance between times to be yourself and times to fit in. Um, most of my experience comes from the adult autism community. And I would say that I see more masking among my female than male clients. This is also why a lot of females are missed diagnostically because they cut and paste other kind of girl identities. Um, or, so they're not the classic Thomas the Train, you know, Harry Potter. They're just, they're being emo or they're being like the rock, rock star girl. So they're, they're, able to uh, more effectively, so to speak, look like some kid that they're really not, but they kind of stole the identity of someone else and are acting like her. So uh, girls do that a lot. Uh, and uh, with people with less severe uh, uh, areas of support needs, so more cognitively high functioning or people that are functioning in corporate America or in organizations and associations where there's more of a pressure to, and for a lot of them, it's the chit chat. It's like the social stuff. It's the water cooler talk. And it's the like pretending you care about someone's weekend. Um, and what I will say about that is um, it's very exhausting. Yep. And it takes up a lot of resources. So in terms of good or bad, it's necessary. And depending on the person's goal, they're going to need to do it. What they probably most need from us is an acknowledgement of all the resources that takes. Yep. Um, and my clients really benefit when they come in and say, wow, you know, you spent three. And that's also why I like to um, oftentimes try to get my parent, my clients to work part time because it takes so much energy to act normal that it, it's like doing your normal job and then another job. Yep. And um, so I, I advocate part time. Sometimes in college, I advocate classes at a time. And I also talk a lot about breaks. I write a lot of accommodation letters for my clients 
and uh, you need a break, whether a break literally means the break room or a shorter day or a safe person that you can go to within the environment and be yourself and, and you know, do their do your uh, autistic uh, quirky behaviors. So um, I think that's what they really need from us is is an opportunity to, to go back and forth between, you know, what the world wants and, and what we know. Um, sometimes when I uh, get clients in therapy and we get the diagnosis right, they start to unmask and their parents are really mad at me. They're like, they're so much worse. And my clients are going, yay, I now know who I am and I can do these things. And so um, unmasking can, can be a relief. But again, you have to be mindful of the setting and your own goals for yourself. You know, Dr. Dr. Sully, you talk about positive reinforcement and recognizing the challenges that our clients face in the moment. And I think that is so important because it is harder. I mean, we're, we're asking of them what a lot of people aren't doing themselves. You know, they're, 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 they're and, and they're trying so hard and putting so much effort forth to learn and to educate themselves that we have to recognize that and reinforce that and provide them the space and place um, to be themselves also, right? It's like, it's, it's not either or, um, but we, we want them to be both and we want to bring the world along with us, obviously. Um, one of the, um, I, I think that I, I absolutely love um, one of the programs that we have here at JFCS is called SAIL, um, Support to Achieving um, Independent Living. And it is, I, I hope I got that acronym right, um, but it is a social recreational program for people with intellectual disabilities. And it brings peers together as a group to do, you know, fun activities, but it's really educational for them, right? It's it's fun, but educational. And so whether we're going to Springdale Farms and we're at a bonfire or whether we're doing a, a friend's giving event, and it was really impactful um, you know, throughout the pandemic, I think that, you know, the world shut down and we went into this these Zoom boxes. And I think that we thought it would really have this negative impact on our clients, right? They wouldn't be able to be in, in person, but it made the world a little bit smaller for them. And where they may have been uncomfortable sharing before because wide open space, lots of distractions, they were able to interact in, in, with each other in a way that was meaningful that was um, and, and that was manageable for them. And since that time, we've seen these peer-to-peer relationships develop. I was at, you know, at <laughs> Friendsgiving back in November, we gave space to everybody. They, they had a potluck dinner. And they all brought, you know, whether it be stuffing or turkey or whatever it was, and they got together and we asked them what they were grateful for. And so many of them had said, I'm grateful for this community that I have. For for them, some of them to even express that, to acknowledge that that peer interaction was so important to them and that they, you know, and they're sharing their work experiences and their lives and their, and, you know, some of them are dating and, you know, it's just it's amazing to see that development where, you know, that transition and that ability to excel and succeed for them to have a full and rich life as anybody would want to and deserve. It, it's just, to me, it was a blessing to see it and to experience it with them. Um, but, you know, and, and that is, you know, you know, going back to that kind of concept of masking, they could be truly themselves with each other and go into the community and figure it out together, right? Like how to, how to adapt and 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 work within a social construct so they could be themselves but together and what was appropriate and inappropriate and learn together um it's such a positive model for growth and expansion um and and really achieving independence they can unmask when they're together right that's right right <laughs> 
Yes. You know, both of, both of the, the points that you brought up uh, reminded me of an article that I just recently read um, where Chris Bonello, who's an autistic advocate um, and former primary school teacher in the UK, was quoted. Um, and I think that's kind of just like brings it all back home where he said, you know, often an, an autistic person's biggest struggle is not rooted in being autistic, but being in the non-autistic world they inhabit. And I think that was really echoed by what you all just shared just now. Agreed. So I'm thinking about our listeners. I imagine we might have some people thinking, well, maybe there's some signs of masking that either I mask or my loved one masks. What are some advice that you guys have for those listeners? How can they initiate that process of recognizing and addressing masking in their own worlds? I think that that kind of ties back to what we were saying earlier, that to, to validate and acknowledge the effort that they're making. So it's not so much like, oh, I see you masking. Why are you masking? Don't do that. But just sort of say, I can tell that that was really effortful for you. Um, you know, I, I, I actually just this morning, I had a family in here and the parents were noting how the young person was actually interacting with relatives at a recent gathering. And I could tell from his facial expression, he was getting annoyed because he was feeling like they weren't getting how hard this is for him. Because just before that, he was talking about how he's very hard for him to talk to friends. And I jumped in and sort of said, that was really hard for you. You made a huge effort and it's easier with family than with friends. And then he was like, yes. And so, you know, the danger for masking besides exhaustion for the individual that's doing it is it can uh, make the individual look like they're more capable of what they can actually do. And it can raise expectations where they can't meet them. And so my clients are always, one of my clients coined the term high stereotyping and low stereotyping. He says, either I act at my best and everyone thinks, oh, he can do this. He can do these 17 other things. And then he, he he's overwhelmed or he, people think he's incapable and he's actually very, he said, everybody misses that I have a mixture of, you know, what I can and cannot do. And so back to that question of what can you do, you validate and thank them for the effort that they do make. And you try to be um, somewhat a place where they can unmask. So one of the best things you can do for someone in an employment place is be that safe person for them. Just sort of say, you know, if you if you ever need a break, just come into my office and scream. Like, like um, so uh, you can support your loved one by letting them know that you know you could come in and be with me. And at that point, I don't care if you're flapping. I don't care if you're you know talking a, a mile a minute. I don't, you can perseverate. I tell my clients, tell it to me, and you can tell it to me again and again and again. I don't mind. Um, some of my clients, when we, we do 45 minutes of content sessions on the last 15 minutes, we call fun time where they can just go because they've been suppressing the fact that for the last hour, they really just want to talk to me about this one video, but they have to do the work with me because, you know, I get paid. So we do what the other people want them to learn, blah, 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 blah. And then we watch the video. And so, you know, there's just, I acknowledge that trade-off. I thank them for living in my world and I join them in their world. And, and then we, we move from there. I love that positive reinforcement again. I use that. I use that in parenting all the time. I use it in client interaction all the time. Positive reinforcement. It's my go-to. Um, but I think that you, you said a couple of things, Dr. Sella, that I wanted to highlight because for me, I think they really, it really spoke to me. I think that if you're, you know, as our listeners at home thinking about how they can deal with, you know, their loved ones, um, I always try you know, I think sometimes our, our clients, our communities, they struggle with transition and expectation. So, you know, before, you know, thinking about where you're going and what you're doing and trying to prepare, you know, that loved one for what they may or may not encounter, um, I think is, is often a very good, um, a good exercise and to talk about things in ahead of, ahead of time and making it personal. So, 
you know, we mask. I mean, I mask. I think of a social situation and I'm like, well, I have to, you know, I have to act this way or I have to act this way or this is appropriate. Um, you know, I, I shouldn't be too chatty. I shouldn't interrupt too much. Whatever it is that I'm trying to think in my own mind, those behaviors that I want to encourage and quell in myself, right? Um, it's similar. And so I think when you're speaking to your, whether it be your family or your, your clients, making it personal um, and, and, you know, and having that conversation and being able to model things that, you know, things that could happen and things that, you know, and, and even role modeling, think, you know, looking for ways to say, well, you know, what are our goals here? And if this doesn't happen, here's a safe place, as Dr. Sellis says, here, here are ways to, you know, kind of manage it and acknowledging that we may not know what to do in the moment, but we're going to try our best. And um, <clears throat> I think that, you know, making it personal. So, so our, you know, our loved ones know that we deal with this too in a different way. And it happens, you know, th these things present in different ways to everybody, but we we try to empathize um, and connect with them in that manner. So, you know, this is how I deal with it. This is how you could deal with it. Or how could you deal with it better? Asking them to come up with those strategies, asking them to internalize. If this happens, how do you think you can deal with it? What are there some other ways you could deal with it, right? That role model, you know, helps with those transitions and those expectations and acknowledging even before you get there, how proud you are of them for making a go of it. And we're going to have a great night and it's going to be it's going to be OK. But, you know, that that acknowledgement that even, you know, coming into that social situation, knowing that you don't know what to accept is expect is so important and is worth acknowledging that in and of itself, um, I think, is important as well. So. Make it personal, have the conversations, try to help those transitions and expectations, and then positive, positive, positive. I am so grateful that we have both of you on here. The amount of tips and tricks and perspectives from multiple angles that you added to this dialogue, I think is going to be a great value to our community. Before we start moving into closing out, is there any other advice or tips or tricks that are like at the top of your head that you want to share when it comes to helping people self-advocate? I think for me, um, not to, you know, those big situations that we just talked about when you're looking at how to talk about masking and those kinds of things. I have found that <clears throat> it's, if it, as, as, does everyone remember that book? Like, don't sweat the small stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, or the devils and the details, those cliches, I really feel like those small things, those small successes in life are things we have to applaud often. You know, when our when our loved ones aren't expecting to be praised or they're doing something that integrates it, it integrates success into their everyday life, I think it's really important to call that stuff out. We shouldn't wait for the big wins to celebrate our clients or to celebrate our our loved ones, right? Acknowledging that, you know, every day we have struggles. Um, and we're working on being the best version of ourselves and to make sure that acknowledgement, we shouldn't be stingy with it, right? We should make sure that that positivity comes through throughout the day. And that way, when we fail or don't do as well, it may not feel as bad because we've had all those positives and, you know, and couching that, 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 that success, you know, in, in, in that kind of continuum of um, moving forward. So, so for me, it's, you know, you know, let's, let's revel in those successes often. Um, let's look for those successes in small accomplishments, not just the big ones. I love that. Dr. Sella? I think the only point that kind of is left in my mind as I'm listening and thinking about all these things that we've talked about is um, an often missed aspect of people with disabilities that they have a lot of 
uh, gifts that they can give to other people, either disabled or, ab or abled, whatever, they're divergent or, or neurotypical. Um, so we know from the depression literature, for example, that one of the best ways to um, work through depression is to do volunteer work. You think uh, you have no energy to do anything for yourself, but it turns out that you feel valuable when you're actually, it's actually literally as effective as Prozac. It's it's a really important component of, of re, uh, recuperating from depression. I have been really amazed by clients of mine that are have a difficult time advocating for themselves, but they will go gangbusters advocating for each other. So I'm thinking about a young woman I work with who, you know, is barely leaves is you know so I, everything has to do with me with me with me but she can make phone calls like nobody's business she has figured out medicaid medicare and so in her she happens to be a member of another group not jfcs she works she's with the jabs but she anybody who needs a phone call to a dentist or to order the chinese food that she's she's your girl and so um i think that sometimes it's kind of like the c1 what is it uh, learn one c1 do one with teaching surgery in medical school um, you can get a lot of advocacy work by having clients advocate for one another. A lot of my clients have a very deep sense of justice. They've been bullied. They've been left out. They know what that's like when they watch someone else being downtrodden, they really get very activated and they will show incredible skills that are harder for them to, and then we can go through what you just did for them. You can do for you. And so that maybe is my, is the last point I really want to make is just tapping into the resource of advocating for others or advocating as a group. Um, sometimes they'll come to mind when I used to work at, at a clinical day school, sometimes my clients would come to my, my defense if they thought I was being somehow berated or, you know, it was very sweet to see them sort of stand up for me. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, you're not as high as you, you act like. <laughs> so um, tapping into the caring um, uh, parts of our clients and watching them advocate for others. I love that that's rooted in the strength-based perspective, right? That you know, everybody has something to give and everybody has strengths. I love that, Dr. Sala, because it really is true. Um, and we, it's our job to find our strengths and put it into the world so it becomes a better place. Truly, I, I really can't. I know Rose and I can't thank you both enough for, for bringing your voice and your mind to this uh, podcast today and to really helping our community to better understand, you know, the issues that many of our um, community members are facing. And so I wanted to ask, uh, just as we're wrapping up here today, um, Dr. Sella, if one of our listeners wanted to reach out to you directly, uh, what would be the best way for them to reach you? And Rachel, I'd love to ask you the same question after. Sure. Um, probably best is email. Uh, so my email address is Dr. Sella, which is all one word, D-R-S-E-L-L-A at, and then the same word again, drsella.com. So drsella at drsella.com. I also have a, a website. You could just Google Google search Shiri Salas ID, or you can put it's www.drsala.com. And then um, you can also call me. My number is 609-682-3115. I do try to get back to people within 24 hours, but since the pandemic, there's been such a huge uh, need for uh, clinicians. Um, I don't just work with this population. I also have other kinds of clients. So I do get full, but I will try to call everybody back uh, to offer resources. Uh, oftentimes it's not me, but I can suggest colleagues and, um, and other resources. So those are some of the best ways. Wonderful. Thank you. And Rachel, what would be the best way for, for people to reach out to you at Jewish Family and Children's Services? Absolutely. I think they can reach out to me via email. My email address is rhammer at jfedsnj.org. 
Um, that's our hammer at jfedsnj.org. Um, or they can call me on the phone. Sometimes that's easier um, for people. So that phone number is 856 424 1333 extension 1220. Amazing. Well, Rose and I thank everyone for listening to the Jewish Disability Services Together We Make an Impact podcast. We hope you'll continue to follow our conversations. And this episode of the JDS Together We Make an Impact podcast was made possible by our sponsor, the Jewish Community Foundation. We thank you for your commitment to making an impact in the disability community. Thank you.